Well, good morning again, Heights family. Good to see you. And as I say family, it's good to have our family out at Midlothian campus joining us now uh, on this Memorial Weekend. Boy, I wasn't here last weekend, and uh, we had just a huge weekend. It looks like things do better when I'm not here. I I don't know. I, I serve on a, a, a board of trustees with Southern Baptist Life and one of our entities, and it, it affects a couple of Sundays a year, and so that's where I was last week. But we had our uh, one of our big Love 804 weekends and got to see pictures and hear stories of you guys out all over our community doing such a great work, showing God's love and kindness. And then, of course, we came in here on Sunday and our youth led us last week. And I know we're all just so proud of them and excited uh, for what's going on in their lives and being able to see the ministry that they can have among us. So we, we had a great weekend here at the Heights and a wonderful weekend week uh, here on our staff. One of our staff, Kyle Gibson, who I think, are you back there on the board? I, as you might have noticed already, I forgot my glasses today, and I can't tell who really anybody is after about the first row, but I say a hand waving. Kyle and his wife, Alexandra, she's usually singing about right here. They had a baby this week, and uh, little Gabrielle was born Thursday morning, so you be praying for them as they go through a really wonderful transition in life. Uh, one of our staff wrote them and said, welcome to a new chapter. And I couldn't help but thinking, boy, is it a long one. <laughs> so, but we're sure, we're sure excited for them. All these fun things to talk about. And I, and I have to start by saying, hey, did you know that sin makes you stupid? Yeah, it sure does. I, I have a, a good friend, Greg Huerman, who's often on the camera. I, is that you, Greg? No, it's not. Okay. So, but, but Greg is usually on that camera and, and Greg tells me every single week that sin makes me stupid. I'm starting to take it personal. Uh, you know, what, why are you telling me personally this? But it, but it really does. He's absolutely right. And it makes us, and I'm sorry for your parents who are teaching your kids not to say the word stupid. I'm going to say it about eight more times this morning, but anyway, you know, one of the, there's a multitude of ways that it it makes us stupid. You know, one is that, that sin gives us this sense of confidence that it is there to give us something, even though it's never given us anything. It always leaves us in debt. It, it, It always leaves us owing. Another one, man, sin gives us confidence that we're in control. As we're literally spinning out of control. It, it, it is amazing that the devastation that it can wreak in our lives. And maybe what's even more amazing is that, that you and I, so many of us believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we've received his grace and forgiveness and, and will use that very same grace and forgiveness as permission to sin. I mean, I know we don't really think it gives us permission, but we all know how the thought process works. Well, I, I know I shouldn't, but, you know, God's loving and, and, and God's forgiving. You know, we, we treat sin as that it actually has something to offer to us, but apparently God has some kind of hang up with it. And we know we're supposed to obey God, but, you know, it'll all work out because God's kind of love. Boy, what a faulty view and understanding of sin. Folks, sin is a, is a poison. 
It it is a devastation. It will a hundred percent of the time put poison into your life and, and into those around you. It will bring devastation into your life and those around you. And and we're waving a flag of grace and forgiveness like it gives us permission to just keep on doing it. it, it just continue on into it. Man, our story today is is going to bring us to stupidity, grace and forgiveness, devastation, and, and all wrapped up in a big mess. Because that's what sin does. It takes some of the greatest things God's given us, like grace and forgiveness, and it, it just gets all messed up in there. And we're going to see that through the one of the great stories, one of the very sad stories in the Bible of David and Bathsheba. Now, yes, I, I am out of sync. I, I know in Life Group last week you, you looked at David and Bathsheba, but I, I'm sorry, I wanted to look at it myself today. I, I wanted to take us there today. Next week, I will be back in sync as we continue our trek working through the whole Bible this year. So today that has us in 2 Samuel 11. If you want to go ahead and, and turn there. It's about a quarter of the way uh, through the Bible. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then the, the two books from Samuel. And if you get to Kings and Chronicles, you've gone too far. Second Samuel chapter 11, and I'm going to read a good bit of this chapter. I'm not going to read chapter 12, which I've yet to figure out why I made that decision, because much of my lesson today is going to come from chapter 12. So you really should go back on your own. Maybe if I get a little long or a little boring this morning, read Second Samuel 12 while you're sitting here. Uh, that's a very important part of this story. But then I'm going to jump to Psalm 51, which I'm also going to read a good bit of that. Psalm 51 is the product of what happened in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. I'll be reading out of the New Living Translation today. There's a couple of tricky phrases, uh, both in the Samuel passage and in the Psalm passage, that I just like what the New Living uh, does with that and how that kind of smooths that out. So I'll be reading from that today. 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Two very important words there, however and normally. (laughs) Normally, this is where a king should be. Normally, this is where David should be. However... In contrast to where he should be, in contrast to what he should be doing, he's somewhere else. Verse 2, late one afternoon after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a, a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. That sounds kind of like, how would that work? You know, if you've been to Israel, it, it It's not that hard to see how that works. You got homes are built on hills. And so if you're at the top of the hill like a palace, you're kind of looking down on the roofs dotting the hillside right there. So he he notices her taking this bath. He sent someone to find out who she was. And he was told she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to go get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. 
She had just completed the purification rites ever after having her menstrual period. That is awkward, isn't it? Uh, you know, when you read that in the text, you don't, you don't see that word. It's going to talk about, you know, she's come through these purification rites. Actually, what the scripture is doing is just doing biology for us. You know, there's the cycle that's seven days, and then there's the purification rites that are seven days. And if you've ever tried to get pregnant in life, you know, day 14 is a big day, right? Day 14 is important. The scripture is just pointing to biological truth here. And so guess what happens on day 14? She sends a message back and says, hey, I'm, I'm pregnant. Verse uh, s- s- 6. Then David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. When Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army were getting along and how the war was progressing. Then he told Uriah, go home and relax. David even sent a gift to Uriah after he had left the palace. But Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. When David heard that that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked, What's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away so long? You know why it's so important to David that he go home. We got to figure out a way this baby came from something other than me, right? And so listen to his response. Verse 11, Uriah replied, The ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents, and Joab and my master's men are camping in the open field. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. Now, stop right there. There's not actually a rule that says he can't do that. There's not a written rule. There's not an unwritten rule. I don't know that anybody would hold anything against him if he went home and enjoyed a weekend with his wife. But it was his own sense of honor, right? It was his own sense of honor. Hey, man, the the people I fight with, the people I serve next to, they're in the midst of it right now. I can't be back here enjoying myself, which is really frustrating for David. (laughs) It's just a mess when honor gets in the way. Which, isn't it interesting, he has this sense of honor that I can't whine and dine and sleep with my wife. Well, David's at home. He's whining and dining and sleeping with his wife and other people's wives. Boy, this honor thing is a mess. Verse 12, well, stay here today, David told him, and tomorrow you may return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David had invited him to dinner and got him drunk. But even then, he couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife. Man, this is really frustrating now. This guy's got more honor drunk than I do sober. Again, he slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guards. So the next morning, man, folks, it's just hard to believe how low we can sink. So the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, and he gave it to Uriah. He wrote a letter, and Uriah had to carry it. The letter instructed Joab, station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest, then pull back so that he will be killed. And the rest of the chapter kind of unfolds exactly what that looked like and how it happened. Verse 26, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. When the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace And she became one of his wives. Then she gave birth to a son. But the Lord was displeased with what David had done. If you look down at chapter 12, verses 1 through 6, verses 1 through 7, 
God speaks to a prophet by the name of Nathan and tells Nathan what David has done and sends Nathan to confront David about that. And, and that's what you see happening in those verses. And, and David kind of comes around and he confesses his sin and, and Nathan affirms, assures David of God's forgiveness. But the consequences that are now going to be played out Because of that sin. Folks, we can be forgiven and still have to deal with consequences. So in the midst of chapter 12, that this would be the timing, Psalm 51 is written. Let's turn to Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. I I like that phrase, because of your unfailing love. Folks, do you realize that any time you say, dear Lord... Whether the next sentence is to praise him, to give him thanks, or it is to confess sin, or or it is to ask for something, you, you realize that the reason God is there, the reason God is listening, the reason God is responding has nothing to do with how well you pray. It has nothing to do with how well you live today. When you and I say, dear Lord, we're totally dependent on his unfailing love. And we've got it. Isn't that good news? He hears you when you pray because of his unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. Man, anytime you feel like God is being unfair, remember that line. Hey, God, I'd have done this differently. <laughs> God will be proved right. There won't be a person, there won't be a situation that is going to show God wrong. He is just, He is right. For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not, oh, verse 11, do not banish me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Hey, can I tell you some good news? You don't have to pray, verse 11. David did. As a matter of fact, I would imagine that verse scared David to death because David watched the Holy Spirit leave King Saul He watched what that meant in his life. He's now weighing what he's done and thinking, surely this is what is coming next. And he's praying, God, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. That was a very appropriate prayer for David. You know what? You and I don't have to pray that. Because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross for you and me, His blood that washes us clean, the Holy Spirit comes and lives in us permanently until the day we step into heaven. So we don't have to pray that. That is good news. David did. I don't. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to rebels. 
Did you hear that? Man, when I really enjoy your forgiveness, I'm going to teach that to others. I'm going to share that with others, and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God who saves. Then I will joyfully sing. Boy, the forgiven sing. The unforgiven, not so much. You know, they weigh whether their voice sounds good or not, whether they like the song or not. But the, the forgiven, the forgiven sing. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You do not desire a sacrifice, or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. That's interesting he says that, because actually it's the scripture that commands for the Old Testament that commands sacrifices and burnt offerings. What, what, what's, dang, what's David saying here when he says, you don't, this is not what you desire in this moment. What David is addressing there is your tendency and my tendency that when I'm, you know, when I'm in debt, I've done wrong, you know what I need to do? I need to, I need to go to church today, I'll throw something in the plate, maybe I need to do a good deed. And what are we trying to do? I'm trying to square the account, right? Okay, God, I, I've squared us up. I've made things even. It's just a very natural way we think. I did wrong, but now look at the good I've done. You know what he says repentance is? It's when you're as broken in your heart about sin as God is. And we're running around playing religious games saying I'm now in the good. No, no repentance is when we have a broken and repentant heart, oh God. Man, I'll tell you something, folks. There, there's a... There's so much there. And, and on, on one respect, I could say, boy, that's, that's going to be the case with so many passages, so many stories in the Bible. I don't want to use the word unique or rare, but I, I do think this particular story stands out as having more lessons of anyone I can think off the top of my head in the Bible. Folks, I could preach on 2 Samuel 11 and 12 and Psalm 51 for the rest of the summer and not be repetitious at all. From Memorial Day to Labor Day, I could just look at these three chapters. You don't believe me, do you? Uh, that's fine. That's okay. I can't tell whether you're nodding anyway. Look, look up here. I, I want to show you ten, ten messages you're not going to get today. Ten messages from this story. The first one, boy, this would be a really practical message. Not being where we should be. You know, verse one really draws that out. There's a place that we normally are supposed to be, but however, you know what, folks, when you and I are in the wrong place, and we're, we're in wrong places sometimes, aren't we? That doesn't mean you will do wrong. It doesn't mean wrong will be done to you. But boy, there's an interesting relationship between being in the wrong place and ending up having wrong things happen. Isn't it interesting how many times we watch, and I, I, it's hard to say this because it sounds like I'm uncompassionate or I'm, I'm blaming it on somebody, but, but we watch in the news innocent victims. It's amazing how many times, you know what, if you weren't there, that doesn't happen. You're in the wrong place, bad things happen. Number two, when we inquire, <laughs> David said, he inquired as to who she was. Now remember, she's been watching her naked, right? Hey, what's her name? You know, it's funny. The reason I say that inquire there, folks, is we play a little game with ourselves as we approach sin, how innocent we are in doing that. Well, I'm, 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 I'm not, I, I, I was just clicking. Well, I, I was just asking. 
Well, you know, I was just, you know, this time. I mean, we, we've got these little things we're doing and we're just innocent as we're full on running toward sin. Number three. Did you know this, number three? Did you know that sin requires more sin? Do you know how rare it is that you ever commit one isolated sin all by itself? Man, sin stimulates more sin. Sin leads to the next sin. Sin sometimes needs to be covered up by more sin. Sin is not alone. We just keep right on. Number four. Number four, aren't you glad I'm not preaching on all these? Because it sounds like he's preaching on all of them. Number four, we can be so sinful and so self-righteous at the exact same time. Boy, I tell you what, you read chapter 12, verses 1 to 6, where David is being confronted with his sin. And at first, boy, he's got this self-right. I mean, it'll make you mad until you realize he's not one bit different from you. I mean, really, this is, this is the, the, the per- I mean, I have just lived in hell all week long, and I've lived like hell, and I can walk up here to church so righteous and good and even look down on others. Oh, man, is that so much a part of our nature. Number five, our prayers are entirely dependent upon God's love. I already referred to that as we were reading that. Our sin while hurting others is a sin against God. That's one of those phrases there that reads kind of funny when it says, my sin is only against you. David's making a bit of an overstatement there to make a point. We do sin against others, right? As a matter of fact, there's a lot of variables to our sin. Sometimes I sin against myself. First Corinthians says that all sexual sin is a sin against my own body. So sometimes I sin against myself. Sometimes I sin against one person, an individual. Other times, if we're really pretty feeling, feeling pretty strong, we might sin against a whole group. Sometimes somebody sees my sin, knows I've sinned. Sometimes nobody knows. But in all these different variables and all these different things, you know what the one constant is? I have sinned against God. No matter who it was against, me, nobody, I've always sinned against God. You know, we, when we're playing this, this game of how, well, I know I shouldn't, but, you know, God's gracious and forgive. You know, we, we really, as we approach sin, we kind of build it up in our mind that God doesn't actually care, don't we? I mean, what I'm doing is small. What I'm doing is no real big, great deal. It's not, I mean, it's, it's not like it's going to change heaven. Yeah, and we just tell, and really the case we're building is that God doesn't care as I spit in his face. That's not depending upon God's forgiveness. That's mocking God's forgiveness. There's a very fine line between depending on it and mocking it. We sin against God when we're sinning. Number seven, only God can forgive and clean a heart. Boy, create in me a clean heart, oh God. You can't create a clean heart in you. Your parents can't do that. Your friends can't do that for you. Only God can do that. Number eight, I, I referred to again when we were reading. Number nine, really receiving. I don't think I worded that very well. I think maybe a better word would be living. Really living in God's forgiveness is going to result. How do I know I've really received? How do I know I'm really enjoying and living in God's forgiveness? If that has really happened in your... Folks, there's nothing better than the weight of death being lifted off you. 
There's nothing better than the weight of guilt being lifted off you. When that has happened, you want to share it. You want to share it with others who haven't received it. You want to come alongside somebody who maybe has received it but is struggling and living in it. And you want to teach. You want to encourage. And you want to praise and thank God. Man, I, you know what? Nothing happened in my life special this week. What am I going to thank the Lord for? You know, every Sunday you come in here, you should be thanking God you've been forgiven. Amen? Every Sunday, we have a reason to worship if you just live the most boring week of your life. Number 10, real repentance is a broken spirit. I refer to that. Folks, that's 10 messages. I'm just walking right by. I'm not going to say a thing about those other than the last things I've just said about those. But I'm not even covering that today. But, but instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to focus on two other points. Not two from the 10, two more. I said I could go all summer long. And the two points I want to kind of pull out of David and Bathsheba, the two things I want to bring out of this story, I'm not doing these two because I think they're more important than the ten. They're just two I feel burdened by. Two I think we need to hear today. If you'd have caught me a month from now, maybe I would have picked from one of those, one of those others. But two things I really think it would be good for us to think on, meditate on, and work with today. The first one is so it's just discouraging and sad. There's just, folks, there's no depth of sin that I can't sink into. There's no depth of sin you cannot sink into. Let's think about who did what we just read. David, David is a man after God's own heart, right? And it's not David who described himself that way. It's not his friends who described him. God described him that way. Man, this guy is after my heart. David, David is the one who wrote over half the Psalms. Think about that. It is his words that make our heart beat when we want to think about God. I, I, I mean, we turn to Psalms. You know what? Believer and unbeliever alike turn to Psalms probably more than any book in the Bible. There's just something there that rings so true and emotional for us. Whatever state we're in, David gave us over half of those. David is the guy who had the kind of faith that could beat a Goliath. Well, he didn't beat a Goliath. He beat the Goliath. That, that, it wasn't metaphorical for David. It was literal. He beat Goliath. You know, I even wonder sometimes, and he talks about his faith in God there, but I wonder, was it faith or was it just pure, unadulterated passion for the living God? He was so passionate about his God that to see somebody, hear somebody mocking him. Boy, David was knee deep in a fight before he ever stopped to think about what kind of faith he had. He had that kind of passion and zealousness for God. We can be very confident David loved God. David walked with God. David knew God. Many of us would say, and we'd be wrong for saying this, but it'd be pretty natural for us to say, I don't know if I could ever know God like David knew God. Well, if that's who he is, and that's what he is, then how does he do that? You know, I'm a, I'm a big believer in my own life and in yours. I'm a, I'm a big believer. There are almost no sins that just, wow, where did that come from? Very rarely are we ambushed by a sin that should have never happened. In almost every case, you and I have laid the groundwork for that sin. 
We, we have allowed things, we've built things into our lives, and, and it may have taken years, but, but we do things that set up for that sin. And I could take you back into some of David's life, and we could see, especially sexually, how, hey, that's, you're putting some things in place there that aren't going to work out okay. But, you know, the bottom line is, whatever character quality or event or whatever it was the reality is folks it's pride and you see that pride in verses one to six when he's confronted an incredible self-righteous pride you know it made me wonder I, I and I don't know this there's not a verse that says but I just I just wonder when Satan watches you and me really actually like growing in the Lord Really, it's getting more and more difficult to tempt us, to, to lure us away. Does, does he stop trying to lure us with sin and just start one thing, pride? Because once he gets his pride, he, he, now we're easy to lure back into sin again. Did you follow that train of thought? Folks, there's absolutely no sin that you're beyond. You have never reached a place in your walk with the Lord that makes a sin or a group of sins, a set of sins, beyond you. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 warns us of that. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. What's that mean? It means when you think you can't fall, you better get some knee pads right now. Right now. Verse John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, this passage is going to be mostly interpreted, rightly interpreted, more looking backwards. You know, if, if I'm looking back into my life and actually standing here and saying, I've never sinned, well, First John 1, he's saying, you lying to yourself. You absolutely have. But there is, you can, there's a force of that verse that you can move future. If I'm standing here saying, oh, I would never sin. Oh, I would never do that. First John 1, 8, so be careful you're not deceiving yourself. And, and you know, folks, when I, when I say there's no sin that's beyond you, do you know I actually have a hard time believing myself when I say that? I mean, I feel like I could say, and I feel like pretty strongly about this, I, I really feel like I could say I would never commit adultery. I, I would never do that to my wife of 31 years. I would never murder somebody. I can't fathom how that happens and what that looks like. And, and you know what? When I say that, I don't feel like it's pride that would lead me to say that. Do you? I, I don't. I mean, I suppose if I came here and said, I would never kill somebody because I'm just so good. Well, yeah, that's kind of obvious pride. But I don't feel like I'm being boastful or prideful when I would say, man, I, I just, I can't ever imagine myself doing that. But here's the problem. I might mean it in all sincerity. But see, the moment I say I can't imagine myself, I've basically also just said, God, I've got this. See, I'm above that sin. I just can't imagine myself. I can't imagine any set of circumstances where I would do that. I See, I don't need to depend upon God in that place. Do you see now where pride comes in? You see, where I've just said, this is what I'm beyond, I've just announced the place. I don't need to trust in the Lord. You are never, ever, 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 ever beyond God's grace. You need God's grace not only to save you from what you have done, you need God's grace to help you not fall into it again. 
We're never beyond depending. Oh God, I'm an unworthy sinner. Help me. What did he say today? Help me be motivated to obey you. Help me to be loyal to you. If I'm not depending upon God, I don't ever want to get to a place where, oh, I'm loyal to God. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm obedient. We're not okay on our own. We're only okay in humble dependence upon God's grace. The second one is, the second point is, uh, boy, folks, I, I, I don't know if this is true throughout the world. I don't know if it's true throughout Christian history, but I, I've sure seen it and heard it in America. We really don't have a grasp on what forgiveness does and doesn't do. Uh, we can be forgiven of sin, and there be still be consequences that, that we have to pay. I, I have heard people in, in my office and count. There was one time, one time, this wasn't at this church, it was at another church. Of course, I have to say that with what I'm getting ready to say. It's the only time I ever thought I, that somebody was going to physically harm me in my office. And he was wanting to do something, and I was, I mean, with my Bible open, you know, I mean, what, what does God say? And, and of course, I was referred to as judgmental. Uh, I was denying God's grace and forgiveness. He was using God's grace and forgiveness to say, nothing can be held against me. I, I've been forgiven. Forgiveness does not mean there are no consequences. There's nothing in the Bible that says that. As a matter of fact, there are stories that show otherwise. Now, folks, let me, you know what? I can look at places in my life where I think, man, there could have been more consequences for that. Are you like that too? Can you look at an event or maybe even a season in your life and think, boy, it, it could have sure spun out of control. And, and I, I do. I say, God, thank you for your grace that saved me from worse consequences. I, I think sometimes we don't connect the dots. Sometimes we're going through things and we we don't connect the dots back to that what I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with today may have been a sin or a season of sin that was 12 years ago. But there are still consequences even in forgiveness. And hey folks, here's the good news. There is forgiveness. Second Samuel chapter 12 verse 13. Nathan says, David, God says you are forgiven. Hey, if you have murdered somebody in this size room, everybody watching online, there's a chance that's out there. If you've murdered somebody, I want you to know something. God loves you, and he will forgive you of that sin. If you're an adulterer, you're in this room. God forgives you. Man, what incredible news, folks. God, for, you know what that means? That means God still loves me. That means I can still know and experience his blessings. That means heaven is still my future. What incredible news that God forgives. But do you know verse 13 where, where, where Nathan communicates that to David. Verses 10 through 14 all around it is explaining the consequences that he's going to have to live with. Do you know David's reign... In, in Israel is never again going to be free from conflict and tension. David's home is never again 
never for the rest of his life is going to be free from conflict and tension. And it all comes back to this. It is amazing. We have, I mean, would y'all say David is what? Top three? Certainly top five most well-known people in the Bible, isn't he? I mean, this is one of the big Bible heroes. We have a big, I mean, Scripture gives a big chunk to his life. And his entire life can literally be looked at as before Bathsheba and after Bathsheba. Man, before Bathsheba, that, that zealousness, that passion, sharp in his decision-making, which had made him an incredible warrior, an incredible general. After that situation, man, he falters and falters in what he should do about his family, falters in what he should do in these political and, and army decisions, and, and he's, he, he's lost his confidence, Loved by God, forgiven by God, restored to God, absolutely. Folks, do you know why there's consequences? Do you know why God in love and kindness allows there to be consequences? Because sometimes that is the only thing that will keep you and I from running right back to our sin. The Bible says, as a dog returns to its vomit. You know, I'd love to think that I love God so much that I will not sin anymore. But you know what? My life has proved otherwise. I don't love God so much. I, I, I'd like to think I so trust that his word is good and right that I'm going to take it, trust it, and obey it. But my life proves otherwise. Folks, sometimes it's only, it's not love for God. It's not faith in God. Sometimes it's only fear of consequences that keeps us from returning and drinking from the well of that poison. God's doing a, a, a God didn't make David. He, he didn't give David a, a lack of confidence from that day forward as a punishment. It's just what sin and failure does. He didn't send his, his, all the family problems that would roll out of this. That's just what sin does. God's being kind to us when he says, hey, you don't want to drink from this well. And, you know, my love for God should sure drink me from keep drinking from that well, but that hadn't worked. My faith in God's word should sure keep me from drinking from that well, but that That hadn't worked either. So sooner or later, God in his kindness just lets the poison have its impact. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray we would heed the warning that sin is devastating. May we stop this absolute foolishness that we play in our minds where we, where we literally continue to approach sin because we're counting on your grace and forgiveness. Oh God, may we not mock it. May we fully depend on it. Thank you that there could still be love and forgiveness for a sinner such as I.
It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.